I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees and their scribes could not make sense of why Jesus eats and drinks with the tax collectors and sinners in Luke 5. In fact, that they are disturbed by the company that Jesus keeps demonstrates their fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of the gospel and the purpose of the Messiah's mission on earth had been long promised by the law and the prophets. And so Christ instructs them. He says, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. He tried to tell them this plainly in the previous chapter in Luke 4. You might remember the scene. Jesus had returned to Galilee from His 40 days of temptation by the devil in the wilderness. And He entered the synagogue in Nazareth. And He came in on the Sabbath. And when He did, Luke records that Jesus stood up and opened the scroll. And this is one of my favorite passages in the Gospels. He stands up and he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61 and he began to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now everyone's mouths have basically dro dropped and hit the ground here. If you, if you read the way that Luke tells this. And he looks out and he announces to their amazement that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now what could all this really mean? Just what kind of ministry and mission is the Lord's anointed said to have here now that He's on earth? Now that He's come? Is it a healing ministry? Well, He certainly performs them in the next few scenes, whether it's Simon Peter's mother-in-law or the lepers. Or what about releasing the captives? Well, He casts out demons. He casts out a, a demon from a, a man that was possessed. And to everyone's astonishment, they're like, who has this kind of authority? And if we take these glimpses of the new creation that the Messiah's work will eventually usher in to be the main point of what He's on earth and what He's come here to do, then we will have stopped short. And Luke tells us this if we keep reading his narrative, right? In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 5 again, when the paralytic man is let down through the roof and placed in front of Jesus to plead for another healing... Christ answers, but His response defies expectations, doesn't it? Instead of making the lame walk, Jesus speaks, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now this disgruntles the scribes and the Pharisees too. Who can forgive sins but God? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up. Pick up your bed and go home. Church, the gospel is for the sick. 
He has come to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. And to be sure, He does more than just call sinners. The Son of Man forgives them. And if there's one truth that the 16th century Protestant Reformation and the Reformers perceived so well, it was this promise of the Gospel. The Wittenberg professor at Martin Luther's side for much of the Reformation, Philip Melanchthon, he declared in his important theological work, Loci Communis, which is the common topics. It's basically the one of the first Protestant systematic theologies. He says this about the gospel. He says, What more evangelical expression can be conceived of than this? The Lord has put away your sin. Is this not the sum of the gospel or the preaching of the New Testament? Sin has been taken away. Amen? Amen. Amen. What I'd like to do this morning in commemoration of the 16th century Protestant Reformation that's marked by Martin Luther's 95 Theses that are dated October 31st, 1517, is to hear from a biblical text that is at the central message of the Reformers, which is Galatians 5. And to do so, we will draw insights from Luther's famous 1535 lectures on Galatians that became a commentary. Many have referred to this commentary on Galatians from Luther from 1535 as the Magna Carta of the Reformation on Christian liberty. Over a century later, John Bunyan, a Puritan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, he expressed the impact that Luther's commentary on Galatians had upon his own grasp of the gospel for despairing sinners. In his autobiographical work, you might have read Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And then one occasion in that book, Bunyan says this about Luther's commentary in Galatians. He says, I must let fall before all men that I do prefer this book of Martin Luther upon Galatians, accepting the Holy Bible, before all the books that I have ever seen as the most fit for a wounded conscience. The gospel is for the sick, church. Jesus has come to call not the righteous, but sinners. To repentance. And Luther's a sinner. He knew this, which is why he always clinged to the gospel. And he, write, he writes in his preface to his commentary in Galatians, he says, I believe that in this epistle, Paul is concerned to instruct, comfort, and sustain us diligently in a perfect knowledge of this most excellent and Christian righteousness. <coughs> Like the Galatians themselves who can be so quick to be deceived or to depart from the biblical gospel. We see this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and following. We too suffer under the impossible burden of another gospel. In our own lives, whether we fail to confess and practice the truth of the gospel. Something that Paul had to rebuke Peter for in chapter 2. And this disconnect is a serious issue. And Paul warns us about that in our sermon text. When we find ourselves in such a place, we know just how soul-crushing it can be. It doesn't matter if it's as long ago as the first century Galatian readers or the 16th century Augustinian friar Martin Luther, the English Puritan John Bunyan, or the 21st century CCF church member. Living the Christian life as if you were still trying to make satisfaction for your own sins or to impress God with religion 
Or that you must merit His acceptance and love every day or maybe every Sunday is a dead-end street. The sign as you turn onto that road reads in all caps and bold, NO WAY OUT. You put yourself in your own spiritual straitjacket. There's a deadlock and you've thrown away the key on the straps and there's, there's no magic trick to escape this. And you stretch your arms apart trying to break free. You quickly realize that you are totally powerless to remove it. And then it breaks you. It breaks your spirit. And the art of self-justification unmasks itself for what it truly is. It's just sin's condemnation. It's the law's accusation. Luther listens to Paul writing to the Galatians here and he says, the afflicted conscience, it has no remedy against despair and eternal death except to take hold of the promise of grace offered in Christ. That is the righteousness of faith. And this righteousness is not something that we do. It is what He has done for us. It's a righteousness that is given. It is not one that is achieved. Now, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul, he teaches what we are to think about wages. We think, I've earned something. And Paul says, okay, if you want to talk about getting a paycheck, most of you know your Romans Road probably well enough to know Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift... The free gift, praise God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this brings us to our main idea, this free gift. Christian freedom is freedom in Christ from and for. Christian freedom is freedom in Christ from and for. That's a horrible sentence. So let me finish it with another one. <laughs> Freedom from bondage to sin and the law to stand just before God and freedom for being bound to be free to live by faith alone in love toward our neighbor. Freedom from bondage to sin and the law to stand just before God and freedom for to be bound to be free to live by faith alone in love toward our neighbor. And we're going to hear and respond to the Apostle Paul's teaching in Galatians 5, 1-6 about this Christian freedom in really three steps through our passage. We're going to look at an exhortation, warning, and confession. And so let's begin by turning our attention to Paul's exhortation in Galatians 5.1. Hear the word of the Lord. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, or you might have stand firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. What we actually have here are two exhortations or imperatives or commands in this verse. Stand firm and do not be subject or submit yourself to a yoke of slavery. And in truth, they're really one exhortation stated in two different ways, right? Positively and negatively. The emphasis, however, is on the positive, stand firm. And if we respond rightly to that one, we'll keep the second. 
The term here, stand firm, has a military connotation. It implies an adversary, opposition. It anticipates withstanding an attack. Luther actually finds a similar admonition in 1 Peter 5, 8-9, where we are summoned to be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. To stand firm, church, requires vigilance, steadfastness, alertness. We've got to be awake spiritually. In recent weeks, Pastor Eric has shown us from the Gospel of Luke how Peter and the disciples failed at this point in the Garden of Gethsemane by sleeping physically and spiritually. (laughs) Drowsiness, apathy, smugness have no place in the daily Christian life or in the regular confession and defense of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And still connecting 1 Peter 5 here to Galatians 5.1, Luther cautions, he says, For Satan violently hates the light of the gospel. That is the teaching about grace, freedom, comfort, and life. And therefore, as soon as he sees it arise, he immediately strikes to obliterate it with all his winds and storm. Now one of the main reasons that Paul writes the letter to the Galatians and to us is to call us back to the scriptural gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look with me in Galatians 1, 3, and 4, this Lord Jesus is grace from Him who gave Himself for our sins so that we might, He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. This call to stand firm tells us that we're already in hostile territory. We're born into it in this present evil age. Luther has something to say about Galatians 1.4 and this present evil age when he writes this. He says that the world with all its wisdom, righteousness, and power is the devil's kingdom out of which only God is able to deliver us by His only Son. And this is the same world also in Galatians 6.14 That through the cross of of our Lord Jesus Christ, the world has been crucified to me. I'm dead to it. And I to the world. Although we make ourselves comfortable, don't we? What exactly is this freedom? I think we can hear about it through the negative admonition, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now we know elsewhere in the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 verses 17 and, 17 and 20 that until we are made alive in Christ we remain slaves of sin. But in Galatians Paul's terminology has more to do actually specifically with life under the law. It's our former life. And in Galatians 3.23 listen to what Paul says. He says, but before faith came we were kept in custody under the law. Or you might have captive captivity, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Church, this is the language of imprisonment. Imprisonment. To be under the law is to be subject to the law's power. It's condemnation. It's accusation. Held captive by it, so to speak. Paul teaches in the prior verse that to be under the law in Galatians 3.22 is actually to be under sin. Christian freedom 
is freedom in Christ from a doomed twofold reality. On this, Luther says that Paul teaches us that we are free in Christ from two things. One, we're free from the wrath of God. And second, we're free from the law. Because of what Christ has won for for us through His cross, we are free from God's judgment and wrath upon our sin and our troubled conscience. Where we are prone, and you know this, to convince ourselves that God is actually not for us. He's against us. No matter what Romans 8.31 says. And because we're free from the wrath of God, whatever lie we tell ourselves there, the Word of God delivers us from it and sets us at ease. And so the German reformer reflects, he says here, for who can express what a great gift it is for someone to be able to declare for certain that God, is, that God neither is nor will ever be wrathful, but will forever be a gracious and merciful Father for the sake of His Son, Jesus Christ. And as for the second, Luther states, from this there follows the other freedom by which we are made safe and free through Christ from the law, from sin, death, the power of the devil, hell, etc. Luther likes to use etc. There's a whole academic article on Luther's use of etc. And I've read it. <laughs> the law we're set free from, it cannot condemn us, it cannot accuse us. The law has a power, to be sure. But in Galatians 3.21, Paul tells us it is not to impart life. Outside of Christ, it can only tell us actually that we are not Him. Its proper use is to remind us that we need Him. For those who stand firm in the freedom in Christ for which He has set us free, the law will drive us to Jesus, not to despair. But we like to live life under the law. And Paul knows this, and Luther rightly discerns it too. And this is an attempt to gain right standing before God on the basis of some sort of perceived worth according to human standards. Maybe it's requiring Gentile Christians to be circumcised so that they can be identified as children of Abraham so as to receive the blessings of the covenant. Maybe it's further requiring the works of the law to achieve righteousness by keeping the Mosaic law in full. Maybe it's making a monastic vow, taking pilgrimages, going to Mass, cultivating virtues, or buying indulgences. Or maybe it's regular church attendance. Or maybe it's saying that you read your Bible every day this week, or that you prayed for an hour before you went to work or to class. Or maybe it's that you shared the gospel with somebody instead of being quiet. Or maybe it's that you'll vote a certain way on an upcoming ballot. Or that you give X amount of dollars to the church and charity. Or that you uphold traditional family values. And the list could go on, right? Freedom in Christ is not freedom not to do those things. It's freedom from thinking that any of them get you any currency with God to be justified, forgiven, righteous before Him, and loved by Him. 
Now, if you're like me, you're a slow learner. Luther's a slow learner too. And he says this at this point. He says, the freedom that Christ has achieved for us, it's easier to talk about than to believe. And therefore, one's spirit must be trained. And Paul continues to train us here with the warnings in verses 2 to 4. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, for you are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Paul warns his Gentile readers here, here as well as us in 2023, that two terrible realities will result from trying to return to life under the law rather than standing firm in our Christian freedom. First, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And second, you actually are now going to have to keep the whole law. What the first warning teaches us is that the grammar of the gospel allows for no construction that goes like this. To be justified before God, we need Christ and blank. No. The gospel grammar, according to Paul, is not Christ and. It's an either or. It's either Christ or no Christ at all. In the spirit of the Reformation, this is our confession of solus Christus, Christ alone. And Paul's teaching us the foolishness of the word of the cross here. We just can't believe it, can we? It's got to be Christ and, right? No, that doesn't make sense. Paul's like, that's right. That's why it's the foolishness of the word of the cross. Ah, really? Yes. Luther recognizes this too. He says, this teaching is the touchstone by which we can judge most surely and freely about all doctrines, works, forms of worship, and ceremonies of all men. Whoever teaches that anything beyond the gospel of Christ is necessary to attain salvation, whoever establishes any work or form of worship, whoever observes any rule, tradition, or ceremony with the opinion that thereby he will obtain the forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and eternal life, will hear the judgment of the Holy Spirit pronounced against him here by the apostle in this text that Christ is of no advantage to him or her at all. Now this benefit, this language of benefit, or you might have advantage that Paul mentions, likely has in mind the future judgment. In essence, what Paul is saying is that if Gentiles agree to receive circumcision as either a requirement for salvation or a work to secure justification before God on the day of judgment, they are going to be terribly and eternally disappointed. And this is why Galatians 6.15, Paul tells us that your only boast, church, your only boast, may it never be that we boast in anything else. It's totally appropriate that we started with Jeremiah 9. Be that I boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Luther charges us with this Pauline warning not to succumb to personal temptations to despair and to believe the enemy's lies or, you know, the lies that we tell ourselves. 
Our freedom has been lost and we have been severed from Christ. What that means is you've been alienated from Him, separated, uh, estranged from Him. When we pervert the gospel into justified by law, you see that there in verse 4. It's when we allow fear, guilt, and continual anxiety over our standing before God to rule over us through the accusing voice of the law. I think some of these will sound familiar to you. You can't do anything good. You can't do anything right. What's the point? Don't you know if you've transgressed the law in one part, you've transgressed the whole thing, so why try? I mean, let's be real. Could God really love you because of your past sins? He knows everything, right? The ways in which we express our depravity before we're the Lord's, whether in secret or in public. Oh, come on now. You know that you're nowhere near as good a Christian as the other people in your life or in this church or in your dorm or on stage or your family or online. Do you really expect to hear well done and goodful, good and faithful servant? We've got to be trained with Paul's grammar of the gospel. Luther's trying to train us too in his commentary. He says in response to those things, he says, this is how you respond. That doesn't concern me. <laughs> those are his words. Basically, I don't care. For if I either trusted in my performance of good works or lost my trust... Because I failed to perform them, in either case, Christ would be of no avail to me, and I want Him to be of avail to me. Therefore, whether you base your objections to me on my sins or my good works, I do not care. For I put both of them out of sight, and I depend only in the freedom for which Christ has set me free. Therefore, I shall not render Him useless to me, no, which is what would happen if I either presume that I shall attain grace and eternal life because of my good works or despaired of my salvation on account of my sins. Luther adds that if distressed consciences keep hearing Christ judge them, condemn them, he says you've got to wake up. His voice is being impersonated. Christ is not the accuser. The devil is. And so he powerfully preaches here in this section. He says, Therefore, if Christ appears in the guise of a wrathful judge or lawgiver who demands an accounting of how we have spent our lives, we should know for certain that this is not really Christ but the devil. For Scripture portrays Christ differently. He is our propitiator, He is our mediator, He is our advocate, He is our comforter. He is our good shepherd. Christ does not add to your affliction, saints. The gospel is for the sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Luther knows 
that Luke is relevant here too. And he quotes from Luke 19.10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The second warning is that we're now become obligated to keep the whole law. <laughs> and one of Luther's profound turns, turn of phrases is that we must not turn Christ into a Moses. Salvation is by promise, not by the law. See Galatians 3. It's a master class in reading the whole Bible. But even if we wanted to be saved or justified by the law, then we need to keep in mind, Paul says, that we have to keep it in total obedience in every way. Something that even those who were persuading the Gentile believers here to live by the Mosaic law in addition to Christ were not even doing. And he addresses this in chapter 6, verse 13. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in the flesh. Paul actually deals with this in chapter 3 in verses 10 and 11. Only God's curse can be expected at the end of the dead-end road of justification by the law. This is an approach to salvation that is about performance instead of faith. It's about working instead of begging. The self-righteous don't come empty-handed to God. They place value and worth on life according to human traditions. We judge by outward appearances. Tax collectors and prostitutes beg, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The righteous says, I'm glad I'm not like him. This idea of begging as the sum of the Christian life stuck with Luther all the way to the end. His final words are, we are beggars. This is true. Looking back on his early days in the monastery, Luther remembered that every effort he took to make satisfaction for sins, trying to find justification under the law, it only terrorized his soul all the more. There's no certainty of salvation there. There's no ultimate peace with God, no confidence in Christ. Christ was of no benefit to him as he tried to meet the obligation of the whole law. He says this is like a person who's trying to live as if Christ hasn't even come yet. Still trying to live under Moses. But he says, not us. May it never be, he declares. For we have faith in the Christ who has already come. And here and here alone is where justification will be found. Where we will hear the consoling voice of Jesus. And the law will be silenced. And this brings us to a time of confession in verses 5 to 6. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Paul's exhortation and warning are followed with this powerful confession. And it summarizes in a concise form really the message of the whole letter. The confessional nature of verses 5 and 6 can be seen in the shift, if you look in your, your word, from you in the previous verses to then we. And you also see here Paul's famous triad of faith, hope, and love. The first confession in verse 5 centers on the Spirit, which you'll get to hear more about if you keep reading chapter 5. The second confession centers on Jesus Christ. And in particular, in Christ Jesus. 
These two confessions show us that the whole scope of our salvation occurs within the sendings of God the Son and God the Spirit. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. God sent His Son, and God sent the Spirit of His Son. The totality of our salvation occurs in God's mission of giving us Himself in the Son and the Spirit. Believers, the fullness of time has delivered us from this present evil age. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And for those free in Him, we are no longer in Adam, in sin. We have a new creation reality that is only in Christ. God the Son was born of a woman, born under the law so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And for those whom Christ has set free, they are bound now. They are free for. They are free to be bound to live by faith working through love. For those who are sons of God in Christ Jesus and are now walking by the Spirit, the key for both entrance into and our daily life in the sphere of the gospel is none other than faith. Christian freedom is freedom in Christ for faith active in love. There are several biblical passages that have been, become synonymous with the Reformation. Maybe it's Matthew 16, the keys of the kingdom there, and I will build my church. Or Romans 1.17, for the just shall live by faith. And Galatians 5.6 is central to the message of the Reformers. They love to quote it. Grasping the meaning of Paul's formulation of faith working through love was essential for overturning what Luther, Melanchthon, Zwingli, Calvin, and others had handed down to them from the late Middle Ages. In short, the church's teaching had come to a place where Christians were justified by love. Faith on its own was seen to be insufficient to merit eternal life in heaven with God, and it needed to be filled out by love. Specifically, the works of love that merited saving grace and removed the penalty for sins. And by the end here, love has to qualify faith to make one acceptable to God. What we have in this moment is an instance of turning Christ into Moses, making the gospel into a law. And anytime this happens, justification is distorted too, and it morphs into justification by works, not through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. But doesn't it all sound too familiar? Are we not prone to place our confidence or our assurance of salvation in how much we feel like we love God? Now, like any religious practice or good moral spiritual virtue, they can become another gospel when they take the place of Jesus Christ as what makes us righteous before God. So let me ask you, church, do you have a different justification than faith in Christ alone? Do you measure what makes you righteous before the Lord by your emotional state during worship songs? Or how dull or lively your affections are at 6 a.m. when you're trying to wipe the crust out of your eyes to read your Bible before breakfast, before you go to work, or go to class. Uh, or how much or how little your mind wanders during prayer. 
or how much or how little you wanted to wake up early and drive to church this morning in the rain. I get it. Pastor Eric is tough to follow. So. <laughs> or how much or how little you win the battle not to do the things that you don't want to do on any given day. You see, the issue here is not that these are wrong pursuits. The problem is when we make them religious capital with God for justification. And a clear illustration comes from the example that Paul uses in our sermon text, which is with circumcision. Now, even though he threatens the Galatians, don't do it. We know that under different circumstances, Paul actually permitted Timothy to be circumcised in Acts 16. So what's the issue? Well, the issue is about why do you want to be circumcised? And this is another key point of gospel grammar in, five, in Galatians 5.6, which is to learn how to say neither nor. You see, we live in the rupture of the ages. The world has been crucified to us and us to the world through the one cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The old ways are dead. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, Galatians 6.15. The old human ways, the old ways of identifying and assigning value, worth, righteousness, they're all crucified. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. And so also is the flesh crucified with its passions and desires, Galatians 5.24. The new has come, church. We live and we walk by the Spirit. We are justified by faith alone, not by works of the law or by the works of love. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value, means anything. Only faith working through love. Christian freedom is not only freedom from, but it is just as much a freedom for. And Christ has set you free, saints, to be bound to God and to your neighbor freely. Like you, you can actually love one another, the household of faith, and, and then those who are not, freely. Like I can love you without a mercenary uh, ulterior motive because I know that I can freely love you and serve you and submit to you because Jesus Christ is my righteousness, not that work. But still, faith inactive in love is dead faith. And James teaches us that in his letter. This is a kind of faith that doesn't have the Spirit. In fact, it's demonic. And it's not justifying faith. And so Paul reminds the Galatians here too that this is not a time to be lazy, sleepy, idle, sluggish. It's time to be awake. In Galatians 5, 13-14, Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law now is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the remainder of Galatians 5-6 through will unpack this new covenant life in the Spirit. But in Galatians 5, 6, he gives us the sum. So as we come to a close, I guess we could end by asking this question. 
what makes a Christian. Luther is deep here within Paul's thought in Galatians 5.6, and he says this, But here stands Paul in supreme freedom and says in clear, explicit words, That which makes a Christian is faith working through love. He does not say that which, which makes a Christian is a monk's cow or fasting or vestments or ceremonies, but it is true faith toward God which loves and helps one's neighbor, regardless of whether the neighbor is a servant, a master, a king, a pope, a man, a woman, or one who wears purple, or one who wears rags, or one who eats meat, or one who eats fish. None of these things, not one of them, makes a person a Christian. Only faith in love in Jesus Christ does so. The rest are all lies and idolatry. Church, the gospel is for the sick. Jesus says, I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Martin's family name was Luder, L-U-D-E-R. And dur during the events sparked by the 95 Theses in October 1517, Luther decided to change his name from Luder to Luther. And his motivation was to make his name match more closely the Greek word El Eleutherios. Lutherios. You hear it? The freed one. The liberated one. Would we too this morning as children of the Protestant Reformation continue to be so named because we're children of Paul in the apostolic scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit? Would we be so named because of the new name that we received in Christ Jesus? If you're here today and you want to be named as such, if you want to be free, would you respond in prayer and repent and believe the gospel to the living God under the proclamation of His word this morning, confessing your desperate need for the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ to silence the law's condemnation in your own heart? due to your own bondage and deadness of sin. May today be the day of salvation. It's a great day to get saved. Repent and believe, and the Son will set you free. And you'll be free to be bound to Him and to be free to live by faith, active in love, now and forever. And to the captives who have already been released, stand firm by faith. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, I pray that faith will come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Preserve us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties and grant that no clouds of this mortal life may hide from us the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, our one Lord, our one Savior our one mediator. O Holy Spirit, we ask, make it so. Amen.